All right, I'm here today with Dr. Paul Thomas. Uh, you may have heard he's been in the news lately. Um, he is a pediatrician in Oregon. He has over 10,000 patients in, in Portland, Oregon. He's the author of The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, very popular book um, among parents who are concerned about vaccine schedules, what to give, what not to give. And he recently published a landmark study comparing vaccinated, comparing patients from his own practice. Um, it, it's kind of the vaxxed versus unvaxxed study that everyone's been asking for, although it, he doesn't call it that. Um, basically looking at the health outcomes of children who have been vaccinated versus those who have not. And I'll let him explain more in detail because there's a lot to say about that. Um, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for, for coming. Um, Thank you, Brandy. It's nice to be here. I should start out by saying the reason that you're in the news right now is that uh, the Oregon Medical Board has decided that you are a very dangerous person. Um, <laughs> I'm an emergency. You're an emergency. Yes. So, so they, so correct me if I'm wrong, but your, your, um, your paper came out. I don't, I don't have the exact date, but your paper came out. And five days later, the Oregon medical board decided they had to have an emergency meeting about you. Um, yeah. They have been investigating you for a while. Uh, could you maybe just give a little bit of background? What, what has been going on between you and the Oregon medical board? <laughs> That's what I'd like to know. So, um, you know, basically for, for viewers who may not know me, I've been a pediatrician for almost 35 years. I was very mainstream until 2007 when after four years in a row of seeing a child regress into autism in my own practice, it kind of woke me up. I was already deep diving into the science with, with relation to what is causing chronic health problems in kids. And I mean, we know it's a multifactorial thing. There's toxins, mostly it's toxins, but there's some genetic vulnerability, sure. Uh, a lot of factors, right? Mostly environmental. And um, so then I started my own practice, Integrated Pediatrics, in June of 2008. And I was the, the one principle that was mandatory, basically, to work at Integrated Pediatrics was that you have to honor informed consent. Now, that is a principle that is not being applied anywhere in the standard pediatric practices. Their definition, because I know that's what I used to do, the standard definition of informed consent when it comes to vaccines is, here's the VIZ, which is the vaccine information sheet, which is just a you know, tiny little bit of information basically glossing over the real risks of vaccines and not really getting into it. And, and as pediatricians, we were trained to just well, it's time for your kids' vaccines. Here's the viz. Uh, nurse will be right in. And, and you do that as you're reaching for the door because mm -hmm. you don't want questions because once you get into questions about vaccines, oh my Lord, you'll never get out of there, right? So mm -hmm. that's what's going on in America. And if that's your idea of getting informed consent, I'm here to tell you that's not proper informed consent. Proper informed consent, which is what we do in our office, is uh, in every exam room, there's the CDC schedule posted on the wall. We walk up to it, point to it here in bright yellow are all the vaccines the CDC thinks you should do. And do you have any questions? Well, in, the, in my current practice, because the word is out that we, we honor informed consent, there's lots of questions. So we basically go through vaccine by vaccine, the risks and the benefits, the pros and the cons, the prevalence of the disease in society, in this community. And well, Dr. Paul, what would you do? I tell them my honest opinion, what I would do. I don't tell them that's what they should do. I'm just sharing information. 
And so when you give proper informed consent, almost nobody follows the CDC schedule. And Mm -hmm. for example, I mean, this is the easiest one, hepatitis B for newborns. So in America, when you sign in to a hospital to have your baby, you are actually giving permission for routine care. It's in that little long thing that you cannot possibly read, so much fine Mm -hmm. print. And so basically you've given permission for the moment your baby's born in America in a hospital, the nurse comes at your baby with two needles, a vitamin K shot and a hepatitis B shot. And there's a lot of pressure to do it. It's like you're a bad parent if you don't. And that's, especially with regards to the hep B, that is utter nonsense. Here's why. About 1%, but it's more like 0.1%. So somewhere between one and 100, and I think it's more like one in 1,000, mothers who deliver in the United States actually have hepatitis B themselves. So in my very busy practice for the last 13 years, I've had zero, zero, it's a big O, cases of moms who were positive for hep B. And we know it at the time of delivery because the OBGYNs in hospitals are very good at screening moms for hepatitis B. So you've got the results. She doesn't have it. There's zero risk. And yet we're still going to inject this vaccine. Give your baby 250 micrograms of aluminum. Folks, that's a toxic dose of aluminum. My paper written in March with Jack Lyons Wheeler and and a couple others showed that the CDC schedule is pushing infants beyond toxic levels for 30 to 70% of their first seven months of life. They are living above the toxic level. And that first dose of hepatitis B is absolutely the worst. Well, perhaps the pregnancy doses of flu shot and Tdap are even worse. I mean, you're, you're injecting a mother who's pregnant. The womb is supposed to be that safe place. And then you violate all of that with vaccines and pregnancy. So that actually brings me to why the board's after me. My book came out in 2016, and that put a target on me because in my book, I cover chapter one is toxins, toxins, toxins. I mean, we've got glyphosate, we've got acetaminophen, we've got all sorts of things. We know our toxins to neurodevelopment, to your body, right? Your brain development. Uh, But then the next chapter is pregnancy. I take people through each stage of life. If you're going to be a parent, first year pregnancy, I should actually have written a pre-pregnancy chapter because actually there are things you can do. If you're listening or or watching this and you're wanting to have children, read the pregnancy chapter before you get pregnant and tune into the fact that you want to get your life as clean as possible, reduce toxins, reduce stress, and get your nutrients. You know, just really optimize your yourself, right? If you're a vessel for a baby, just really get ready. But then there's the pregnancy chapter where I talk. I'm, I'm quite explicit. I don't think it's a good idea to do the tetanus, pertussis vaccine, the Tdap, or the flu shot. And there's research that is crystal clear. Aluminum is a toxin. Uh, flu shot is causing problems of immune activation. And we don't have any zero studies done on pregnant women to show long-term safety of doing that. So the the CDC used to have a long list of articles posted on their website as their rationale for the recommendation. Well, at the first annual conference for PIC, Physicians for Informed Consent, I went through all those articles one by one and showed that they really were absolutely meaningless. And in fact, 
So the whole reason you're being told as a pregnant mom to do the Tdap is you don't want your baby to die of pertussis, do you? Whooping cough is a bad thing and it's out there. Well, it's true that it's out there. We're, we're still seeing over 20,000 cases a year in the United States, but it's only killing. Now, if that's your baby, that's horrible, right? It's killing about four babies a year out of 4 million births. And any loss of life is terrible. And that's what they use to say, well, you don't want your baby to die, do you? And of course you don't. I mean, I don't want any baby, any parent to suffer a loss of their child. But what they don't tell you is that in the own, their own studies that they were using to validate that recommendation of taking that vaccine during pregnancy showed an increase in chorioamnionitis, significant increase. Chorioamnionitis is an infection around the womb. And that had a death rate when you extrapolate it to those 4 million births per year of 18 deaths per year. So mm-hmm. you're going to kill 18 babies to save four. It doesn't mm-hmm. add up. Okay. So anyway, this is the complicated nature of informed consent. And it, this is what put a target on me that the board has been after me continually since 2018. The book came out in 2016, the vaccine friendly plan, uh, that my troubles as far as they haven't really been troubles, just a nuisance. <laughs> the board has just been persistent with sort of uh, claims that really are they're not going anywhere. They just don't close them. It's very interesting. So are these, when, when they're coming after you, are these complaints that they've gotten from patients where a patient came in and said, you got to shut this guy down. He's giving us bad advice. He's, he's harming our children. How do these originate? Well, that's the mystery. The board will not tell you. Mm. Uh, well, the first one, they gave us a name and it, they're not a patient. So oh. uh, it's, it's, it's a little bit mysterious whether it was a real prenatal visit or whether it was just made up. It appears they read my book and then made a, made a complaint. Wow. Uh, and since they're anonymous, you know, who knows? Uh, but, you know, they've all been of, of a sort of a dubious na- nature, right? I know another one was from an infectious disease doctor. I know this because the parents were sitting in their room in the hospital and heard the infectious disease doctor say, I'm going to turn Dr. Thomas into the board. This is ridiculous. Doesn't he know there's a vaccine for rotavirus? Well, that family in particular has a lot of autism in their family. There was no way anybody was going to get them to vaccinate any vaccine, right? And yet somehow I'm to blame for their not vaccinating. And really Mm -hmm. the new, all the new um, charges that they're coming up with in this emergency order stem from the fact that they've misinterpreted or don't understand informed consent. So the legal process, which is the law and organ of following informed consent, offering people the pros and the cons and the alternatives, which one alternative is not vaccinating. I mean, if you're doing an elective procedure, one alternative is always you don't have to do the procedure. Yeah. Right. That's the law in Oregon. You are allowed in Oregon currently as a parent to refuse all vaccines, some vaccines, do them all, whatever you wish. We still have rights in Oregon. So what but the board has... But, it, but it's so, so yeah, so it's legal. But if you as a pediatrician allow parents to do that, you're going to get punished for that. Is that a fair interpretation of what's happening? That appears to be what's happening. So the board, medical boards are not elected. They are mm-hmm. appointed. And so it's very clear across the country that they're, um, they have conflicts of interest and they seem to be appointed to, quote, maintain the status quo. But there's this massive shift 
from what medical boards used to do, which was to protect the public from dangerous doctors. You know, if you have a, a chemically impaired doctor who's coming to work drunk or, or inebriated, uh, they're sexually molesting their patients. I mean, those are the kind of physicians medical boards used to work hard to protect the public from. Now it's sort of morphed into their duty is to make sure everybody's following the CDC vaccine recommendations. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. like, it's bizarre. The medical board should not. But, the, but to be fair to them, the CDC vaccine schedule has been completely safety tested, right? <laughs> I, I hope you're, uh, you're being. Uh, I, I am. <laughs> uh, so, so here's that's you, but you bring up a really good point. The CDC schedule here's how this all transpired. You know, I've been doing this for 35 years. When you're in medical school, you learn about all the horrible diseases for which there are vaccines. And then you're told vaccines have been miraculous. Look how they've reduced all these illnesses. That's the end of your education about vaccines. They're just wonderful. Mm -hmm. You don't learn the ingredients in the vaccines. You don't learn about any of the toxicities that are in the vaccines. You don't learn about any of the side effects from the vaccines. You're just told they're safe and effective, which I think if you're thinking about it, that's a marketing slogan. There is no such thing as a safe pharmaceutical product. Just look at the package insert. In fact, you wouldn't take any pharmaceutical product if you really read all the things that are in the package insert. I always marvel because as a physician, we write a lot of prescriptions. You know, the mainstream medicine approach is you look at the patient, you get the story, you examine them, then you make a diagnosis. So you, you plonk a label on them, a label of the day, and then what do you do? You treat that label. So much of the time, we're actually treating symptoms, and we're not really addressing the underlying disease or the underlying process that brought that patient to you. And so integrative medicine, the kind of medicine I practice, even though I'm mainstream trained initially, over the last 20 years, I've really self-educated myself to, to not just treat symptoms. Sure, we take care of symptoms, but let's always go back to root cause. And so that's super important. But the CDC schedule, what I saw happening over 30, 30 to 35 years of my pediatric practice was each year, almost, I think every year, actually, there is a new CDC vaccine schedule. And it's never taking anything away. It's just always adding. So you go from when I was a kid, I think I had two or three vaccines, period. I grew up in Africa. Uh, we just ate from our own garden. I mean, it was a very clean living. And I knew of nobody, zero cases of autism, zero cases of severe ADD or ADHD. Uh, I knew of one patient with asthma. It was just exercise induced. They had an inhaler. And that's it. I don't remember any allergies, eczema, any kind of chronic anything. I mean, we got measles, mumps, rubella, and chickenpox and occasional, you know, actually, I don't remember anybody ever even getting strep throat. Isn't that amazing? Wow. I mean, it was just so few infections. And that's what uh, the Somali people coming over, there's, there's a big Somali community in Minnesota. Yeah. And that's what I hear from them is that they they come over here, first generation, second generation, and all of a sudden, kids in that community are, are, are being diagnosed with autism. And to them, yeah. it's a new condition. It's a, yeah. it's a new ailment. Yeah. So, you know, you look young enough that you, you've grown up in a world where there was autism. Um, I didn't. You know, yeah. I mean, so, even even in my childhood, I I don't remember. I certainly don't remember this this level. You know, we yeah. when I when I was a child, I was I was in a classroom with there was one boy who had Down syndrome. Um, I don't remember. I don't remember 
hearing the word autism. I don't remember right. hearing about these issues. Right. Yeah, it's and so you'll you'll hear the mainstream uh, uh, attempt to say it's a genetic condition. Mm-hmm. You don't get genetic epidemics. Yeah, the genes don't change that fast. So it is genetic in one sense, it's epigenetic. And epigenetic is how we respond to our environment. So, you know, they can say genetics and maybe they're code for epigenetics, so they're getting away with it. But mm-hmm. it's the environment, folks. It's, it's That's it. And vaccines happen to be one of the significant pieces of the environmental stress. And we'll get to that with my study when we talk about that. So, But this vaccine schedule gets changed every year. And I watch that. And as a pediatrician, when you first get out of training, you've had book knowledge. Now you're in residency and you're learning what to do. And it's like drinking from a fire hose. There, there's so much to learn that you simply just get busy learning what to do. You don't have time to question it. And you're fed the information that the system wants to feed you, which is vaccines are safe and effective. Look how wonderful they are. And look at all these diseases we're eradicating. And 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 I was so busy doing that and then building my career and I was teaching residents and medical students for the first five years of my career. And I, so I would teach them what I'd been taught. Right. And it just perpetuates. And it wasn't until, you know, it sometimes takes a tragic event to wake people up. And in the medicine, in the medical field, I've noticed that most of the physicians who are aware of vaccine risk have had harm in their families. I mean, Mm -hmm. occasionally you wake up when you see it in your patients. Um, I was talking to Liz Mumper recently, and she's a a pediatrician who has had a similar trajectory as mine, just was a few years ahead of me. And uh, I said, well, how did you wake up so fast? Because, you know, she she woke up probably a decade before I did. She says, well, I I caused a kid to get autism. And it was like, ouch. And I said, well, at least you figured it out after one case. It took me four cases. So first case, 2004, it's the first time I'd seen severe autism. All my literature is saying, we don't know what's causing it. And I thought, oh, so this is what it is. But I had no idea for cause, right? And I wasn't yet awake enough to the fact that I need to dig a little deeper to figure out why, right? You really have to dig deeper. It's not going to be handed to you on a silver platter because it's multifactorial. There are so many different possibilities. And the industry that's teaching us always denies there's any length of vaccines. So that's a tough leap for most pediatricians to go. It might be related to what I'm doing when in fact, well, and there's a lot of social stigma too. I mean, if you even mention those two words in the same sentence, I'm sure for physicians more than anyone else, there's, there are consequences for that. Oh, you're, you're automatically labeled a quack. It's been proven, which is of course not true. The, the one study that's quoted to have proven it is the study that was published in 2004 by William Thompson, who came out as the whistleblower to the CDC that they had the data that it was causing it and they trash canned it. Yeah. And his career has gone silent ever since. He's somewhere in the bowels of the CDC collecting a check so that he can survive. Yeah. Uh, but he's done. And, you know, so no. The the actual study they're using to say that was already discredited by a whistleblower, and yet it lives on. So, um, back so your to, your patient when you when you had your your wake up. Ah yes. So second case must must have been a coincidence, huh? I don't remember the third case specifically, but the fourth case I cannot forget. That was the one that was the straw that broke the camel's back for me. 
I walked into, and some people have heard this story and forgive me if you've heard it because I, it's just important in my sort of wake up, right? We all wake up at some point. I walked into what was supposed to be a normal, well, two-year-old visit. And this little guy was sitting in a, one of those push strollers, fold up push strollers. His back was against the window, the lights shining in and he's sitting in his stroller doing this. And I like, I always interact with my kids. I go right to the kid. I, I ignore the parents, go right to the kid. That's, they're my patient. And I'm like interacting and, inter and I'm getting nothing. I cannot get a connection and, you know, moving around and cannot get a, he's just like not there. And anyway, long story short, he, he clearly was autistic at that point. I knew it. And this was a kid you knew from before you'd been I following knew from him. before. I looked through his chart because I'm like panicking, sinking heart, not another one. I'm looking in the chart. I hadn't seen him for his 12 or his 18 month visit, but my nurse practitioners had documented everything was normal and all the developmental milestones were fine. I think the 18 month, there was maybe a, a slight clue that there might've been a problem. Um, now in situations like these, I must tell you that there's no proof that the vaccines caused autism mm -hmm. because it didn't happen. Boom like that. Right. So I have story after story of kids who regressed into severe autism almost immediately after an MMR or after a series of vaccines done at 15 or 18 months. And there's no question. It happened immediately. It's you like say immediately, like two days. A week? Yeah. Within a day, two or three. I mean, it's just like wow. they, it's almost instantly. And in those cases, it's undeniable. I mean, come on. If you give a patient a shot of penicillin or a dose of amoxicillin, they break out in hives. Do we question was the hives related to the, the antibiotic? Absolutely not. So somehow when it's a regression into autism, we question it. It's just crazy. Yeah, so well, or you'll, or you'll get, you know, they'll, they'll say, oh, that's just anecdotal, you know. Right, exactly. Well, I've had hundreds of these stories, so it's no longer anecdotal. Yeah. But we are lacking good prospective studies or even large retrospective studies that specifically have shown this in real world data. Right. I mean, we need more data. There's no question about it. Uh, those of us who, who work with this population, we don't have any doubt because we've seen it too many times. We've heard too many stories, but the data is lacking. There's no question about it. No question about it. Um, so that so, brings us to your your effort. Um, you decided to, to pull some of that data together. Yeah. So the journey on that process was so I started my new practice, Integrated Pediatrics, in 2008. And we're just doing informed consent and giving the best care we possibly can. And I'm starting to see, you know, better and better outcomes. I mean, I have two separate waiting rooms. I set it up that from the beginning, a sick waiting room and a well waiting room. When I left my old practice, it was one giant waiting room full of sick children. And you, you wondered what the, how did the healthy ones survive walking through that place? So I thought, no, I don't want to do that. I'm going to have separate waiting rooms. They're completely divided. And over time, there was almost nobody in the sick waiting room. Wow. My well waiting room was packed, standing room only. This isn't good for COVID because you're supposed to wear masks <laughs> and social distance. Like, oh my gosh, what are we going to do? So um, anyway, I'm observing this. And then actually Liz Mumper, the, the, the pediatrician I was telling you about, published her study, smaller study, I can't remember, a couple, two, three hundred patients that showed us an association between vaccines and autism. I thought, huh. This is what my gut tells me is going on. Why don't I look? And so I did a quality analysis, uh, dive into my data, and sure enough, it, the data was there. 
So then I got an IRB, Institutional Review Board uh, uh, approval to formally look at the data and publish it. I formally looked at it. I wrote it up. I couldn't get it published. Now, I will say it's my fault that I didn't persevere. I was very busy at this time of my career, and I was also in the process of starting to write my book. And so it, it turned out I put all my energy into the book, which, which you mentioned, the vaccine-friendly plan. I felt I could reach more people that way, write a book that can, that can be read by a layperson. And um, so I kind of dropped the ball on the publication, and it's just a fact. That's what happened. Uh, so, so the book comes out. The board gets kind of wind of this, I think, as sort of what woke them up to we got a problem. Uh, why it's a problem, you can only guess, right? Why would it be a problem to have another way of doing things where you individualize the vaccines to the patient in front of you? I mean, it's interesting. Individualized medicine is being touted as the, the new revolution, mm -hmm. but not with vaccines. Vaccines needs to be one size fits all. It's, it's rather, yeah, it's a little weird. It's, it's rather ridiculous. So fast forward to what's just happened. So I've got all these ongoing board issues. In fact, I still have a board request that was three weeks ago, way before any of, way before my article came out, way before the most recent emergency board uh, suspension of my license. We're still working with the board. They keep asking for more things, more things, more things. They're just fishing, mm -hmm. absolute fishing expedition. And unfortunately, I've been told you have to comply or you're going to, they're going to really come down on you hard. Like they're or they're going to take away your license again. Exactly. Right. So, well, this was before they took it away. Now I'm going, well, they've already taken it. What else can they do? So that's why I'm talking to everybody. It's like, what more can you do? I asked my attorney yesterday. I said, can they do anything more to me besides taking my license? He said, no. Okay. You got my license. So there you go. Actually, they didn't get it. It's just suspended and we're going to fight it big time. Mm -hmm. uh, I think uh, the injustice of what they're doing to, to take a big practice that's having phenomenal health outcomes and destroy it so that nobody knows about the phenomenal health outcomes mm -hmm. and try mm -hmm. to discredit the author of the landmark study, right? It's, it's so just, uh, just one question about that. So they had this, <clears throat> this emergency meeting. What reason did they give for the, what was the emergency? Did they, did they <laughs> give any reason for that? Oh gosh. I mean, the, the, uh, the board action is public knowledge. So you can go read all the, the crazy claims. Uh, it but, boils but none of that's new, right? I mean, this is, weren't these claims that they'd been investigating for like for the past three years and now. Well, exactly. So nothing, sudden, nothing changed, but my paper being published. Okay. And within five days, it's an emergency. Okay. And so let me, uh, let me just read this again, because this is, this is, this is from the, from the, um, the board statement. The board has evidence that indicates that licensees continued practice constitutes an immediate danger to the public, as well as ORS blah, 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 in that the board has found that licensees continued practice of medicine by a physician presents a serious danger to the public health or safety. I mean, that's what they're alleging. That's what they're right. Alleging. Right. So what is the danger? Yeah. Right. So then yeah. they, they, they bring these old cases because they've been fishing for years now. Right. So they bring up these old cases as the danger. Well, we can rebut all those cases and we will. They're, they're absolutely nonsense. In so every one, one that I actually would like you to mention a little bit, just because it's it's been in the news and, and it's been in the news with a certain spin yep. is the tetanus case. Oh my God. Could you just talk a little bit about that? 
<laughs> I'm so glad you asked about that one because that one is the most ridiculous of all. So here's the actual story. This young man, I think he was 11 or 12-ish, uh, unknown to me, unknown to my practice, got tetanus. So he lives in a farm. He work, He's working in the barn. He gets a deep, deep, big gash in his, in his scalp while in the barn. He hit a metal bar that was rusty. Horse barn of all things. That's the highest risk for, for tetanus. And the parents sewed it up with cat gut. Well, tetanus being anaerobic, that was probably right. the, the worst thing they could have done. I mean, I love this family and, and you know, I'm not trying to bash on them. We're actually, I, I hope they know we're friends. I'm just telling the story so the public is aware as relates to the loss of my license. It's completely irrelevant. So the young man gets tetanus, a very severe case. He almost lost his life. He was hospitalized for about three months at OHSU, the university hospital here in Portland, Oregon, a couple months in the ICU. Now, mind you, I still don't know this family. I've never mm -hmm. met them. Okay. He's unvaccinated by parent choice. Okay. He spends three months with all the specialists at OHSU who persistent and consistently try to get him to vaccinate. He, they refuse for the entire three months. And then my office gets a phone call and my receptionist comes, finds me in my office. I'm charting away. He says, Dr. Thomas, I got a weird one for you. Uh, this family wants to come see us. They say they can't get out of the hospital unless they have a pediatrician. I said, well, what's the problem with finding a pediatrician? They said, nobody else will take them because they don't vaccinate. I said, I'll see him. Of course I'll see him. I mean, this is what I do. I take care of kids. I take care of families. That's what we're here for. So he comes actually directly from the hospital to my office and then on to their home, which is about an hour away. And he's, he can barely walk. I mean, he really had a bad case. Uh, I'm happy to report he's 100% recovered. I just saw him again a month or two ago. Uh, during that first visit, you know, we talked about tetanus. I looked him over. We talked about follow-up. We offered him the, the entire CDC schedule. This is what you do if you want to do informed consent. I mean, they made it real clear. They don't vaccinate. They won't vaccinate. They're not interested in vaccines. And in that particular instance, I actually did not have them sign a vaccine refusal form, which is my normal standard for a well child visit. But that wasn't a well child visit. That was just a hospital visit. They'd already expressed they weren't going to vaccinate. The hospital kept trying and bugging them to, you know. So the board is saying that because I failed to get a vaccine refusal form signed, that somehow I'm at fault. And then, of course, the press is running with it. Yeah. And the way they worded it, you, you know, when you look at the document, the way they worded it, it's easy to get confused and, and sort of say, well, wow. He didn't vaccinate that child for tetanus, so he got tetanus. Yeah. That's no, exactly I didn't what know this life. child. Yeah. I, I had no knowledge of this child. And I wonder how many of the physicians at OHSU who interacted with this child got a signed informed uh, vaccine refusal form. I bet you they have one if that. Mm -hmm. Right. So you have like maybe 100 physicians and people who've interacted. They don't have refusal forms. Yeah. Uh, I have one now because when I saw him in his follow up for his well child visit, we went through carefully. That's what we do at the well visits, documented what the CDC wants them to do. They specifically refused them. They signed them. They're, we're, we're happy together. I'm supporting their decision. Uh, it, it's not a judgment. So I, I think this is where the board is so mistaken. I'm not making a judgment on the right or wrongness, you know, correctness or incorrectness 
of choosing to vaccinate or not to vaccinate. I'm merely following the law of informed consent in Oregon that gives parents the right, right? And so Mm -hmm. informed consent should be done properly. And when it's done properly, you will not get everybody following the CDC schedule. It won't happen. Uh, So the threat I think they're implying is that if you give informed consent, you're going to have less people following the CDC schedule. And that's a threat to the community. I think that's the leap they're making. And, and, you know, with enough bad mouthing of Dr. Paul and, you know, blah, 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 you know, it's, it's sort of defamation of character, right? When in fact, we probably have the only office in Oregon that's really doing it right. And your data showed that. Could you talk a little bit about what you found when you looked at your at your data over the 10-year period? Yeah, absolutely. You're probably able to put up to your viewers this. Yes, I can post that in the okay. show notes. Yeah. Perfect. So the study was called Relative Incidence of Office Visits and Cumulative Rates of Build Diagnoses Along the Access of Vaccination. Kind of a long title. Sorry about that. But basically all it means is you know, for the 10 years that my practice was open, that data set for the first 10 and a half years, we looked at on the one axis, how many times were you seen for every condition that we looked at, about 20 conditions. And on the other was the 10 years. And then we simply compared the most vaccinated or the number of vaccines you had to the various conditions. And on that graph, you see in orange, the more, most vaccinated over time, and, uh, and the blue line is the unvaccinated. And these were matched, so they're equal numbers, same number, same age. Uh, and that was done very carefully because we did realize that, I mean, I, I suspected this. Over time in o- Portland, Oregon, where I practice, more and more, children, more and more families are coming to my practice because they don't want to follow the CDC schedule. Mm-hmm. They're either finding us or they're being kicked out of other practices. And there's so many of them who get kicked out of another practice. Well, if you won't follow the CDC schedule, then there's the door. And why does that happen? That happened to us um, when we, we lived in, in Connecticut at the time. And that happened to us. And I've heard this. I've heard the story from so many different people, you know, yeah. either either vaccinate or, you know, hit the road. Yeah. What is their incentive for, for doing that? Are they being told by their insurance companies that they have to do what, what's going on there? So there's multiple incentives. Uh, the most powerful one is just being misinformed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the belief that having a kid fully vaccinated is the most important thing they should do. I mean, most pediatricians, they're really good people. You go into pediatrics because you love children, but they're so blinded by their own training and lack of ability to do a deep dive into the research. Uh, they're just stuck in the belief if they're safe and effective and they can reduce disease and death, why wouldn't you? So you are a danger if you're going to remain in my practice and not fully vaccinate. So that's that the, that's the number one reason is just a, a, a confusion about what's really going on. Okay. And my study starts to hopefully open minds that, whoa, I didn't realize that there were some downsides to vaccine, mm-hmm. right? So if you really believe there's no downside, vaccines are safe. And they're effective. Voila, it's beautiful, right? Yeah, what's to complain about? Yeah, I mean, who wouldn't? So if you're that irrational as a parent that you can't understand that simple concept, there's the door. 
right? You yeah. are a threat to the other patients in my practice, which is a little bizarre because if the other patients in your practice are fully vaccinated, there should be no threat if vaccines are effective. So right. I guess they know they're not that effective, maybe. I, well, I they know. always pull out, they always pull out, you know, the, yeah, the tiny, kidding. well, the cancer patients or the tiny, the tiny babies who are too young to be vaccinated or, yeah. you know, anyone who's immunocompromised, that, right. that subgroup. You're, that, you're, that's the subgroup. And you know what? I'm not going to say the risk to them is zero, but it is very, very remote for the following reason. When you're in cancer chemotherapy and your immune system is suppressed, you don't go anywhere. Right. You don't go to school. Right. You don't go to the grocery store. You don't leave the house. You don't go to the pediatrician's office. Guaranteed you're going to get exposed to stuff. Yeah. I mean, vaccines only cover 14 things. Right. What about all the other things, right? And who are you most likely to get infected by? An unvaccinated child or a vaccinated child? Well, my study answers that question, right? Oh. The vaccinated children are by far sicker, right? So those graphs we look at, the vaccinated have more asthma, more allergic rhinitis, more breathing issues, more behavioral problems, more ADHD, respiratory infections. Mm. Those, they have way more respiratory infections. So you're sitting in the waiting room with a pediatrician with vaccinated people. You're in much higher likelihood of being exposed to other viruses, respiratory right. infections, otitis media. Those are infections, usually bacterial, ear pain, other infections, all these graphs, conjunctivitis, contagious. You're in the doctor's office and we've got toys for them to play with. And they're touching <laughs> their eyes and playing with the toys. And your, your immunocompromised patient now is, a, it's just. So know, that's actually devastating. That, that one finding, I, the, that it's, it's not just that the, the vaccinated are more susceptible to things that are affecting them you're actually saying that in in your practice in this in this group that the vaccinated children are more likely to spread disease they're more likely to be infected with diseases with communicable diseases and well, to spread I'm, them is that i'm right? barely saying that that's what the data would imply okay right okay I'm not saying it's a fact, right? But when you but look, they're at more the, likely. There, there, there's a there's a stronger correlation between being vaccinated and having respiratory right infections, sick, right? And we knew this for the flu shot. There's studies showing yeah. that the, the yeah. flu shot vaccinated kids are more likely to get other respiratory infections. Right. In fact, the study from last year showed that if you got the flu shot, you were more likely to get coronavirus. Yes. Yeah. Right? So so uh, and yet they're saying go get your flu shot so that you're uh, extra safe for Corona or for COVID. No, uh, the only data we have on that says you might be at higher risk for co coronavirus infections. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, there's a disconnect from actual science. And what we hear on the news is, is well, science. We follow the science and the data. Uh, not my data. Uh, my data that's the most powerful data ever published from real world, a life live practice with over 10,000 patients Okay, this particular study was 3,000 uh, some. We had 2,763 vaccinated and 561 unvaccinated. The largest study of its kind ever published. Uh, they don't want the world to have this information. So if you're listening and you have the opportunity to share this with someone you care about, do it. I mean, the, they won't, you won't hear this on mainstream, right? Uh, all you hear is bashing Dr. Paul because if you can't, if you can't beat the data, then discredit the author, 
Right. And so that was going to be my next question. Has the study itself been attacked? Has anyone come down on it and said, well, you know, your methodology is awful. This, you know, none of this makes any sense. Is, has there been any actual attack on what you published? Oh, sure. Okay. Uh, the first ones that I'm aware of came out uh, on Facebook. So what Facebook did is they put a big... Oh, the banner. fact checker? Yeah. So they put the fact <laughs> okay. checker, right? So fact checker uses blogs. They use, uh, it's not science. It's not yeah. peer reviewed. They use somebody's opinion to try to discredit a peer-reviewed study. Yeah. So the process we went through to get this thing published was amazing. I mean, it went through three rounds of peer review, uh, just really getting deep into it, fine-tuning, making sure this data was as real as it could be real. And they could not find fault with it other than, you know, we fix some things, we give them more data. I mean, apparently, I haven't done it, but apparently if you go to the actual website of the journal that published it, you can get to the sub. There's some supplemental tables that we oh. had to provide that are massive. I mean, oh, they wanted wow. to know the details right down to every ICD code that was lumped together as a as an ADHD or as a behavioral issue. Oh. I mean, they went after it. This thing is so sound. I mean, it's just yeah. it's been analyzed beyond analyzed. So they. But, but Facebook what, says right. So will they attack it? Of course. Uh, you know, they will do everything in their power to try to discredit this study and try to get it pulled. Uh, hopefully we will prevail. Right. And uh, that's the hope because there's, there was no wrongdoing here. This was a blinded study that made it actually very difficult to analyze, but, but it was done. It was done very powerfully with multiple different analyses. Uh, so uh, it's a very important study. Yeah, and I'm I'm going to be linking to that in the show notes so anybody can go and look at it. And I've got I've downloaded copies of it too, so you know when it gets pulled from the internet, it's it's still out there. You'll get it back up. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about another thing. So um, you've mentioned in some other interviews that you also have an addiction clinic, and right. had. that had okay. So so that's just gone now because your license gone. has been taken. What what yeah. what happens to the people? Oh, it's, that's the most, I don't say the most tragic because that was a smaller clinic, but for those individuals, it's truly tragic and it should be illegal what the board did. So in medicine, physicians are responsible. If you're going to transfer care, you're responsible for those patients for 30 days while they seek new providers and while you transfer care. And I was forbidden. I cannot do anything clinical, period. I mean, I can't talk to them. I can't write prescriptions. I can't do anything. Now, if you know anything about addiction, it's alive and well in the United States. And mm -hmm. what I was doing was helping young adults get off of opiates, usually heroin, and doing it by providing them a partial agonist called buprenorphine. And the beauty of buprenorphine, some of you have heard of methadone clinics. Uh, mm -hmm. Methadone is a full agonist. In other words, you get full opioid effect. <clears throat> you take a high dose of methadone, you're high for a really long time. You cannot get high, uh, inebriated or, or impaired with buprenorphine. I mean, unless you're a person who's never used opiates, and yes, it could mm -hmm. get you. But it's a kind of like a half strength, if you, if you will. And the other half of it actually blocks the opioid receptors. So mm. you, they can't go out and use something else and get high. Interesting. Wow. Right? So it's a really nice tool. But if you take someone like that who's maybe um, – Struggling still with all the COVID and the quarantines and, and social isolation, that's not a good thing for addicts anyway. And then yeah. you cut them off from their resource. I mean, most of these patients I've been with for years, 
and we're slowly getting them off of their opiates. I've had success by doing that very, very slow and careful. Um, I'm, I worry about those patients. I really do. Uh, I, you know, I sent them a letter. I've wished them the best. And, um, but, you know, if there's any tragedies, that's on the board. So what, let's say, God forbid, there is, let, let's say somebody's harmed or, or dies because of what the board did. What legal action, I mean, I, I agree. I think it, it should be, it should be criminal. What they, what they've done is criminal. And so exactly. what, what actual they, action can you take? What, what action can, can the family of someone who is harmed by that, by, by the board just taking you away from, from their, your patients? Yeah. What I mean, action is a, there? I'm not an attorney. So, so mm-hmm. that's not a question for me to answer only that I could say, um, you know, there are, there, it's been floated that a class action lawsuit could occur. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we have to find a class action attorney who's willing to take this up. Mm-hmm. But, you know, especially if there's more than, I mean, in the pediatric patients, those who, who, who lose insurances. So we had Providence Health Plan and we've had the Oregon Health Plan cancel my contracts before the oh, wow. board action, by the way. This oh, was, wow. It really felt orchestrated. So uh-huh. just before the board did their thing, uh, but it was before my paper came out. So that's kind of intriguing. Mm-hmm. Uh, just the way it all happened is very interesting timeline. Uh, so one major re- regular insurance, the, all the state insurance, they dropped me in my clinic. Well, that puts patients at risk because they have nowhere to go. And, and what actually happens, the, the honest truth is, and the board should know this, but apparently they don't. Parents who are aware of vaccine risk, and some of these parents, a lot of these parents have seen tragedy. I mean, they've seen kids regress into autism. They've seen uh, neurological damage of of really severe consequence. Uh, They will not vaccinate. There's no, you can send these kids to any clinic. They won't do it. So where are they going to go? If they cannot have a clinic where they can trust that the providers aren't going to try to bully them every time they see them, they go underground and they stay away from healthcare. Well, that's harmful. We know that we all need healthcare. Come on, folks. So that's what we were trying to provide is a safe place for everyone. And regardless of your philosophy, religion, beliefs on vaccines, integrated pediatrics is a safe place for you. And we provide, you know, standard care as well as alternative and integrative approaches. It's kind of like the best of all worlds with true informed consent. Right. A lot of these patients are just going to go underground. Yeah, but if enough yeah. of them are harmed, that's a class action lawsuit right there on the health plans. And I suing the board is interesting. I'm told it's very hard. Sure <laughs> it's it it's going to take an attorney with the right kind of chops and a whole and some somebody with a lot of money to support it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I look at I you're not the only one this has happened to. And when I look as as a patient and just as an as an observer at what's going on in the medical industry that these these licensing boards i i don't see them as protecting quality of care or protecting me from dangerous doctors or anything like that i see them as a tool for control yep um do you I don't want to put words in your mouth because my, my, my own view is that they're, they're just not legitimate. There's nothing legitimate about, you know, yes, there's, there's a legitimate goal of maintaining quality 
in an industry, but these boards that have so much power that are monopolies and that you really, it's very difficult to hold them accountable. Right. I don't see that as legitimate. What do you think? Well, I, I wouldn't be quite that harsh on, okay. on legitimacy. They do sometimes uh, weed out doctors who are being very unethical. Uh, I'll mm-hmm. give you an example. I got caught up in a sweep that the board was doing on the opiate issue. So uh-huh. when I started my addiction clinic, I became board certified in addiction medicine. I mean, I went through a massive training to really get the expertise because I'm a pediatrician primarily. And what's a pediatrician doing addiction work? That just was a disconnect. I mean, there's probably two or three of us in the country that have that dual board board certification. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, I saw that there was nowhere for the teens and the young adults to go, especially the teens. I mean, the, the regular addiction people wouldn't touch them. And, and so, you know, there's addiction in my family. I thought, all right, this is something I can uh, grab hold of and run with. Uh, well, there was a time where there were these, um, I think you'd call them pill mills. You've probably heard this story. So yeah. Doctor, yeah. doctors are, are taking cash and giving patients a bunch of opiates. And then the patients are going out and selling the opiates on the street for a huge profit. Mm-hmm. So the, a lot of this was going on, even in the Portland area. And the board got wind of this. And because I was writing legitimate prescriptions, but they were for opiates, I got caught up in that sweep. And mm. I mean, I didn't lose my license over it, but I got my hand slapped. It, it, was, a, it was a nightmare dealing with the board. That was my first experience. Um, but they, uh, they got shut down some clinics that were doing really unethical things over in the opiate issue. Mm. So, so that's why I say they're, they're not all bad. Um, I mean, but it seems like there's no way of holding them accountable. It seems like they're, they're able to, they're causing real harm by what they've done to you. And, you know, we're just left with, you know, very limited, limited ways to, to hold them accountable, I think. Well, what I would say, if your listeners are are interested in this fight at all, uh, go to, go to the website I've created for, for donations to fight Mm -hmm. them with a legal fund. It's FTC, which stands for free to choose. So it's ftc.dp, which is for Dr. Paul, approved.com. So ftc.dpapproved.com. And that's my page that is just to raise funds. I will fight this thing until I run out of money. And and I'm told I need, you know, 100,000 just to defend myself. But if we want to go on offense, we might need a million. Uh, So I'm a long way from that. But uh, you know, this is my passion is, is that the information about what's really going on with vaccines needs to get out to the world. So yeah. we published it knowing it would put a target on me. And I didn't know they were going to respond that fast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that, that, that was, was a total quick. shocker. It was like five days. Wow. That blew my mind. I was not prepared for that. So we're on a bit of a scramble. Uh, mm-hmm. I have to protect my patients as best I can. I cannot see them or do anything clinical. So Oh, just for laughs and giggles. Yesterday, I got a board complaint, new one. Uh, Well, not complaint, request from the board. I had done a blog on my Dr. Paul approved, uh, you know, email that I send out to to my email list. And at the bottom, I had said something like to my patients, I just want you to know I'm I'm, I'm here for you. And I'm in the background, you know, making sure that you're going to be fine. And you're not supposed to say that. I'm not supposed to say I'm in the background. So they asked, what does this mean? Give us (gasps) detailed give us a detailed explanation of what it means to be quote in the background. So I, I told my attorney, well, that's simple. I'm running my business and keeping my practice and my patients in prayer period. 
that's what I'm doing. Of course, I'm talking with people as well to enlighten the world. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, I'm not. I Somehow that they must be thinking I'm seeing patients in the background. Right, right. <laughs> I guess that's what they're thinking. Nothing of the sort. I'm not, I'm not a fool. Well, that's debatable. I, I had a doctor tell me, tell me yesterday, well, since you fell on your sword, <laughs> which was publishing this paper, right? So, wow. yeah. Wow. In your, in your legal fight, um, are there other um, prof- medical professionals who've been treated similarly who, are, who can join you if you were to go on the offensive, or is this just you? Well, it's battle by battle as far as medical boards. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's another doctor who, who came out the same day that I got my emergency. He was an emergency as well mm-hmm. for, um, he put publicly that he wasn't going to wear masks and he wasn't going to require his patients to wear masks and, wow. and made a very public statement of that. And wow. so boom, they came after him. Wow. He is, he is planning to go after the board as well. Good, good for him. Uh, and so those are the two I know of in Oregon, but usually it's state by state, right? Each state mm-hmm. has its yeah. own board. I yeah. know there's a lot of board action in California. Yeah. And yeah, it's, been, uh, been a... it's been a nightmare. Yeah, yeah. They have, you know, they have this, uh, well, we could talk about medical exemptions uh, just briefly. <laughs> Let, sure. Let, I'm, I'm in California, by the way, so I've, okay, I'm, I'm pretty well, familiar with that. But yeah, let's, it, anything that you want to say You can about speak that. to this a little bit because yeah. Oregon is, is, has just put up a proposed bill and it looks just like California's maybe worse. Wow. Uh, the ultimate thing is if a doctor was to write a medical exemption, it can only be for uh, CDC approved conditions. Mm-hmm. It can only be for one vaccine. You have to mm-hmm. renew it every year. But what Oregon has done, they're creating a special board that reviews all medical exemptions and reports them to the respective boards. So MDs will get oh, reported. So wow. Wow. So the well, you know, that, in California, that was de facto what was happening anyway. I mean, that's the, right. the Ken Stoller case and, right. and some exactly. other cases. They were even before the most recent bill passed that that implemented what you're kind of what you're talking about. Right. They were already they anyway. Going, yeah. yeah. So, so, so Oregon's just putting it in law. They have to do it. Wow. So, so in wow. other words, there will not be any medical exemptions written in Oregon if that right. bill passes. We've learned right. from what happened in California. Yep. You want to yep. lose your license, write a medical exemption. Yeah. So basically, yeah. this is a power grab by pharma mm-hmm. who owns the state capital, who appoints the board. And now through that process, they can mandate vaccines for everybody and there's no way out of it yeah the only recourse you have is to go underground never go to school never right. participate in well, it's, it's been it's been a big boom for homeschooling We're, we homeschool oh, so you know, yeah and but I, they know. are talking about going after homeschoolers too at least in california so yeah so that's when it's going to get crazy if they go that if they go yes, that far it is. yes it and is. i think i think when adults so so most adults obviously it's adults listening to us chat here um you know, as an adult, you can feel a little removed from this. If you don't have kids, it doesn't mm-hmm. really affect you. And so it's like, yeah, kids should vaccinate. I mean, it's good for the community, blah, blah, blah. Well, wait till they're forcing you to have a COVID vaccine. Right. And if you don't have a COVID vaccine, you can't go to work mm-hmm. or you can't go to this store or that store, or you can't get on an airplane or you can't leave the country or whatever, whatever, whatever. And all of a sudden, now you see that these mandates are very, very evil, right? 
because they're mandating a dangerous product for a illness that is much less dangerous. Now, I'm not saying COVID is not dangerous. It is, but it's not what it's being made out to be. Yeah. Right. So, so there's risks and benefits. And to me on COVID, it doesn't add up. Yeah, no, it, it really doesn't. Um, and you don't even have to, I, I don't want to go off on that tangent too much. No, but I'll certainly get myself I, in trouble on that one. <laughs> but, I, but, but I think you're right that now that now that we're talking about adult mandates and, you know, not mandate like you're going to go to jail if you don't get it. But yeah, you can't, you can't work, you can't get in an airplane. Yeah. I see, I, I see a huge silver lining there because I think there's going to be a tremendous awakening among all the people who have been saying, you know, vaccinate your kids and, you know, just going along with it. All of a sudden, they've got to actually think about what that means and what yeah. it means for them. And do I really want to inject this, this yeah. fast tracked, you know, revolutionary technology? Untested. Yeah. 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 I mean, you know, um, two, three months of, of follow up is not adequate. Yeah. And uh, yeah. we're already seeing problems with the data. And, and, yeah, and, and right. And, and some severe reactions, too. Yeah. So I think so, people are going to. So you're going to have you're going to have a lot of deaths. You're going to have a massive amount of autoimmunity and uh, autoimmunity mm-hmm. takes time, folks. So this is where, you know, those of you who get this covid vaccine, you might be OK at first, but just give yourself a couple years. And when you start to notice your health is take is just tanking, it's just you don't know why, but you're always sick. Uh, it was the vaccine. That's autoimmunity for you. What the vaccine does is it tricks your own body into attacking self. That's autoimmunity. And when you start attacking your own body, it's really hard to undo. You can't take it out. I mean, that is one of the hardest things to treat is autoimmune conditions. And so I think it is a massive danger uh, and there'll be deaths, but the the autoimmune thing is going to be horrendous. And you got to think about it. Autoimmune treatments, the, uh, um, the immunosuppressants, the humeras and embryos of the world, right. number one moneymaker for pharma. Wow. Number, number one. Wow. A single year can cost as much as $100,000 per person. Why do you think you can see all these commercials on TV when they're making that kind of money per person? They can afford to run those commercials. So you've got the number one moneymaker will now be triggered in a massive way. So everybody's going to have to live on immunosuppressants or at least a very much larger percentage of the population. What happens when you take massively powerful immunosuppressants? You know what immunosuppressant means? You are suppressing your immune system. What happens? You get cancer. You get infections. So we're going to see a massive increase in cancer and infections. Number two moneymaker, cancer therapies. Hmm. And what triggered it all to begin with? Number three moneymaker, the vaccines, which perhaps COVID is going to make vaccines number one moneymaker. So the whole thing, folks, you are becoming a human ATM and you can say, oh, Dr. Pauly's full of whatever, full of crap. Can I say that on TV? You can say that. (laughs) (laughs) He's full of crap. Uh, Mark my words, just at least be alert to it. Yeah. That is the silver lining. I don't want anybody to suffer, but the silver lining is if we can wake people up to what will happen, yeah. they'll yeah. recognize well, it. And if we can have, if we can get the data like you did with your practice, if we can, if we can get the data to, to track it as this, as this proceeds um, to be able to sh- show the world. And again, I, this, the study that you've done, I think it is groundbreaking. It's the thing that people have been calling for, you know, for, for decades and it's hard to refute, you know, it, it's, 
um, we're going to need the same thing as the COVID vaccine rolls out. Yeah. And it'll be hard to do though. I heard, uh, oh, that's a nice, that's kitty. my kitty. That's okay. <laughs> she perfect she perfect likes the podcast. Whoa. Okay. Yeah. A part of the co- podcast now. Yeah. Um, what's going to probably destroy our ability to get good data is that I just read somewhere that uh, one or both of the trials. So there's the Pfizer and the Moderna trials. Yeah. Uh, so they take half of their population and give them a placebo. Well, the placebos are not saline, but that's another story. Right. But the other half gets the COVID vaccine, right? Mm-hmm. And what I read was it's not going to be ethical to leave. Those right. I saw that. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. That they're going to, they have to give the, the control group, the vaccine, the vaccine. too, because it's not fair. How it's, is that scientific? <laughs> that is yeah. like, okay. End of trial. So the moment they do that, the trial yeah. is over. Right. So right. if they do that after six months, which mark my words, they will do it before the winter of 2021. Mm. The reason is, I mean, I guarantee you they will do it because the reason is they we bypassed animal studies with this COVID, with these COVID trials. Okay. When they did animal studies for SARS and MERS, there was this finding of, you know, disease enhancement. Right. Uh, the elder animals in particular were dying at a much higher rate on their subsequent exposure right. to the virus. So when our human experiments, these human guinea pigs who took this vaccine, and all of you who are going to take it, you are part of the human guinea pig trial. There were no animal trials. Yeah. When will you be at greatest risk based on what we know from animal trials on similar coronaviruses? Next season, yeah. Next season. So the winter of 2021 will probably be a disaster. And that's the problem. They will end the trials before that by vaccinating Mm -hmm. all the unvaxxed so that they'll never be able to figure that out. They don't want a control group. No, they cannot have a control group do well in the winter of 2021 while the vaccinated start dying at great numbers. They they can't have that. So they have to destroy the the study before that. Yeah. Yeah. On that cheery note. <laughs> so let me, are, are we wrapping it up? Let yeah. Me, let's let's, yes. Let's, let's wrap it up. Right. Anything else that you want to highlight or, or add? Uh, yeah. I don't want to leave you people on that note. That was horrible. <laughs> so, so look folks, this is what I tell my prenatal visits. So if you're expecting to have a child, you're probably thinking after listening to us so far, you're going, I'll never have kids. Um, listen, you can be intentional. You must be intentional if you're going to have a healthy baby. If you do what everybody else does, you'll get what everybody else gets. And it's not pretty out there. It is just not pretty. Every other kid is graduating high school with a chronic condition or more than that. I mean, it's going to be 90% before long. So be intentional. Right now, start avoiding toxins. Get acetaminophen out of your house. Don't eat stuff that has glyphosate in it. So you really have to make your best effort to go organic. You need to uh, rest and, and, and it's rest is restorative, right? Sleep, rest, it's, it's really important. Exercise in moderation. There are certain supplements that you probably should consider. Vitamin D is, is one that, I mean, unless you're living in the sun with your shirt off, uh, you don't have enough vitamin D. We live in the Northern Hemisphere. The sun comes filtered through. We just don't get enough stimulation to our skin to make enough vitamin D. And it's such an important uh, piece of your innate immune system. So it's the innate immune system that's protecting you from COVID, by the way, because this COVID is somewhat of a new virus, which means we don't have antibodies for it. 
I, I think kids are doing so well for two reasons. They've seen other coronaviruses because they've shared them all when they're in schools. Mm-hmm. And kids have the most robust innate immune system, right? A newborn baby mm-hmm. doesn't die from all the stuff that's everywhere. Because why? They have an innate immune system. And of course, they have some protection from mom's uh, transferred from the umbilical cord through the placenta and the breast milk if you're breastfeeding. Those are all good things. But you may need to do a few supplements. And then reduce stress. Now, this is the X factor. I've been on a lot of stress. I cannot deny it lately. But generally, this little gizmo here, your cell phone, turn your alerts off. You know, every time there's an alert or you're scrolling on social media, we're wired animal kingdom creatures to scan for danger. We're always like scanning, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's natural. I have a cat that's like that. A cat's always scanning for danger. Um, every time you have to scan for danger, whether it's an alert that comes on your phone or whether it's a video game or you're scrolling on social media, in your brain, you have to move dopamine and norepinephrine to epinephrine. It's epinephrine that's your fight or flight hormone. Well, little tiny all day long, and you wonder why people are depleted. They're depressed, Mm -hmm. they're anxious, they can't focus. That's depletion of dopamine and norepinephrine. And then you're doing anything in your power to try to boost your dopamine. So you end up with addictions. You end up with overeating because you're just anything, uh, risky behaviors, whatever you can do to try to get an adrenaline rush or a dopamine rush so your brain feels better. So don't forget that we are animal kingdom creatures who need community. And I think that's the, one of the tragedies of the COVID and isolation and quarantine is we're being shut off in our corners, put on screens, and we're losing that human touch and that connectedness that we all need. So I gave you a few ideas there, but honestly, if you'll take it to heart, you can have a, you can have a healthy kid if you want to have kids. You can heal your own body or your kid's body by implementing those same things. It takes time, but it's worth it. That's a much nicer note. Thank you so much for coming on. Um, And I'd I'd love to to keep up with what happens. I'll be following what happens and love to have you back on again. um, Awesome. Hopefully in better times. Yes, we'll definitely do this again, Brittany. Thanks for having me on. Thank you.